I want to bring you a message called Coming Alongside. This is going to be edifying, encouraging, and I hope for maybe just a select few, maybe alleviating, um, because we're going to talk about grace, not just grace from God, but grace from each other to each other this evening, and I think some of us are going to have our burdens lifted. In Galatians 6, looking with me in verse number 1, Paul says this, he says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit Reap eternal life. And here's one of your favorite verses. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. How many of you, not just theologically know it, but personally sense that you need a fair amount of grace. Would you raise your hand if that's true, if you sense it? And the older I get, the more I sense how much grace I need, not just from God, I need it from you. I need it from my family. I need it everywhere I go. And this message is just gonna refresh us because we're in a real busy season here at Newbridge. A lot of stuff happening. Quite honestly, um, I'm amazed at how well we have moved forward together in kind of a chaotic six months, a fast pace not the best communication from myself and other leaders. We, you guys have been very flexible, but I know it's been challenging. And relationships are best in function when they're oiled with grace. And as we move forward, if we're really going to impact our community, if we're going to be the church, not just do church, but be the church, then one of the main ingredients that God is going to work in uh, our, our, our body life together is going to be this element of grace from each other to each other. And so uh, let's, let's be attentive tonight. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to quicken our minds and our hearts and speak to us. Holy Spirit, you are the one who draws alongside. You reveal all things. You're the one who gives us enlightenment, spirit of wisdom and revelation, and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And tonight, we can't depend on our inter- intellect, our energy, our education, we need you to enlighten our minds so we can really get what Paul is writing here, and more importantly, that fresh word that you have for individuals tonight right where they're living. So we humble ourselves and admit our need, and we also confess our expectation that you're not going to leave us hungry tonight. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for abiding with us, for making us like Jesus. Thank you for never giving up on us, for being relentless and bringing grace to us from his immaculate throne. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Be seated. You and I have heard so many stories. Maybe they've hit close to home. Maybe we've had the misfortune of being the main character in one of these stories. What kind of stories am I talking about? Stories of failure. Stories where we as believers didn't live up to the biblical expectation on our lives uh, or the relational expectation that others have on us. If, if we ourselves are not familiar with having failed personally, we surely know those who have. And oftentimes these people are in places where we had them high up on a pedestal, which was not their fault, that was our fault for putting them there, but we had them high up on a pedestal. And then when they proved themselves of all things to be human and committed an error, discouraged us, failed us, sinned, whatever it may be, we found ourselves disillusioned because we thought there was more in a person than God's word actually reveals there to be in any person. No matter how sanctified we are, no matter how long we've been saved, there's still the reality that we are wrestling in our flesh and we're wrestling in a spiritual battle and we don't always execute 100% of the time. And the test of our Christianity is often kind of uh, disclosed. The validity of our Christianity is often disclosed. And how do we respond when people fail God or fail us or fail both? And I can tell you, we in conservative evangelical Christianity, especially in the Western world, we have made sport out of shooting our wounded. Uh, this year, um, late last year and earlier this year, two pastors that if I mentioned your names, some of you would know, uh, mentioned their names, some of you would know them. God used both of these men in my life and both of them morally imploded. Both of them. They actually violated what I'd heard both of them preach. They, if they were living a double life, it didn't seem to affect them, but certainly in the hour of their implosion, they uh, were, were uncovered. They were revealed as having been sinners, not practicing what they preach. And it was hard for me to swallow. But the fact of the matter is, it no longer surprises me because we've seen it enough. Now, what did surprise me was the degree to which the claws came out from other Christians when these two men failed. That the people who had lurked in the shadows, who had opposed these men individually uh, in better times for these men, when they were in the moment of their uh, exposure and their vulnerability, uh, the claws came out and out came the 12 gauges and the wounded were shot. And I thought to myself, there's a lot of things I'm going to answer for when I stand before the Lord Jesus. But the one thing that I'm determined never to have to answer for from this point forward in my life is to be a graceless Christian. I don't want to live withholding grace when it's the thing that I so often crave from God myself. And so when Paul has come to Galatians chapter number six, he's already given us the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. He spent most of the book of Galatians talking about our liberty and our freedom in Jesus. And a lot of people don't like to preach the book of Galatians the way it's written because it really liberates you. It really frees you up. It frees you up to the point where if you preach it like it's it's written and you read it like it's written, it may come off sounding like you're so free that you could pull a Romans chapter six where Paul said, well, if we're free, what should we do? Sin, so grace abounds. But the fact of the matter is we are free. But when he gets to chapter number six, Paul anticipates something. 
that because we're free in Jesus and we don't live by the law of fear, but we live by the law of love, sometimes we're going to move out of that place of obedience. And you can expect that occasionally you and the people that you love and respect will prove themselves human and fallible. What are you going to do when that happens? What are you going to do when somebody fails you? Well, this message is to call us to remember that we have an expectation from heaven to come alongside each other in the moments where we fail, not to crush each other, not to shoot each other when we're wounded, but to lift up, to bear with one another, to come alongside and to help each other get back on the pathway and walk until our journey's end. So let's look at a couple of different kinds of Christians that you're going to meet in your life in these 10 verses, and let's see what the Lord has for us tonight. I want to begin with what I call grace for the sidelined Christian. The sidelined Christian, that Christian that I've just been describing, he or she needs grace, not only from God, but from you, from me. We see one who is failing. Look at what Paul says here. Brothers, now this is a family matter. He's talking about to Christian, as a Christian to Christians. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, that's, a, that's an awful possibility. Paul didn't believe in sinless perfection, not, not in this life. He, he didn't preach that that was going to be the reality of everybody. I don't think he anywhere he says it's impossible, but he does say this. Brothers, fellow Christians, if, if it so happens that one of us is caught in a transgression, if one of us has failed God, that's the scenario for much of what, do is, follow, uh, what is to follow. The f- scenario is this, somebody sinned. And somebody's been exposed as being a sinner, not a person that's an infidel, a pagan, or an unbeliever, but one of us who who says one thing and knows one thing, but it chooses in a moment of weakness to live in counter distinction to what they know is right. Paul is saying here, brothers, if that happens, what is he going to tell us? There's always going to be people that fail and fall in our lives. And if we're going to be the community that we want to be as Newbridge, we want God to send us broken people. I I want the drug addict to come to this church. I want the person on their fifth marriage to come to this church. I want the person who struggles with self-righteousness to come to this church. I want the people that are broken and hurting and flawed and imperfect to come here. Why? Because grace transforms people. And if we will be a people of grace, we will come alongside of those that are failing. Now, we do see also in this passage, We see one that's not only failing in verse 1, but one who is faithful. This is what he says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you also be tempted. So Paul is saying that the calling on the body of Christ is to restore the Christian who has failed, transgressed, or sinned. But he does not allow that opportunity just to indiscriminately fall to whatever Christian. He says, it belongs to those of you who consider yourself to be spiritual. Now, that's pretty important. Because there are a lot of people that want to restore, but the, the criteria here says this needs to be done spiritually, and that spirit that it's done in needs to be a gentle spirit. 
It doesn't mean we ignore. It doesn't mean we enable. It doesn't mean that we call wrong right. It doesn't mean that we're so passive that we just kind of, you know, kind of blow off the significance. Paul's already called it a transgression, but he says the person that is transgressed needs to be restored. The word translated restored there is a Greek word that was often used for a, an out of joint uh, place in the body or a broken bone. And what, what he's saying is, just as you would be careful and tender with a person who has got a broken arm that needs to be set or a dislocated joint that needs to be put back, you need to approach the, the, the sinning brother, the sinning sister in the same way. You, you don't haphazardly jerk on them. You're not gruff with them. You're not rough with them. You recognize that they're, they're hurting that they're out of joint, that they're not functioning the way they should be, and you move gently. You've still got to be firm at some point, but you're going to approach it in a way that enables them to receive what you want to do to restore them. Um, I, I think it's very helpful here that we're told about the action and the attitude. The action is you need to find out what is the best way to restore them, but the attitude is this, do it gently, and here's the reason why. It's something we've got to acknowledge you need to consider yourself. You need to consider yourself because it could be you the next time that's tempted. Recognize that none of us are above board and or none of us are beyond the, uh, the ability to transgress and fail and sin. And so what Paul is doing, he's saying, take your care with these people and recognize this as you enter into this process, you're not made of any different stuff than the sinner is made of. That just as easily as they have failed, it can come on your resume one day too. And so you need to move in this thing with such grace that you recognize one day you may need to be on the receiving end. Um, when we're told here uh, that it's the spiritual people, you know, Paul doesn't go into a long identifying list. Well, Jeff, how do I know if I'm spiritual? When, in the strictest sense, all of us have the Holy Spirit if we've been born of of faith in Jesus Christ, born twice, second birth. Paul said in Romans uh, chapter 8, he said, if we don't have the spirit of Christ, we, we, are, we don't belong to him. We are none of his. And so you have the Holy Spirit, but there is a maturity factor. And I believe what Paul is saying here, and you can go back to chapter 5 and look in verses 22 and 23, and you're going to find out, well, here's the fruit of the spirit. And so what I want to do is I want to see if the fruit of spirit is growing in my life. And if it is, chances are, I might be one whom God would use to restore somebody who is sinning. But as I do so, I need to do it in humility, keeping watch on myself, lest I also be tempted. And so we see this. Now look, there's going to be sidelined Christians. If you'll stay in a faith family long enough, you're going to see dominoes fall. You're going to see people come up short. You're going to see people that act in ways that you never thought they would act. And sometimes it's kind of scandalous. That does happen. But we're not even allowed to shoot the scandalous, scandalously wounded, much less the people who have acted out of character or spilled over into sin, who have a broken and repentant heart. God's saying, I'm looking for some of my spiritual children to come alongside some of my fallen children so that as my children, you can move together again towards me. And so, brothers and sisters, that call is on us as the body of Christ. Well, let's go further. Let's get beyond the issue of someone who is sinning, and let's go to somebody who is just merely struggling. And maybe this will be easier for us to identify with, because I don't think there's a one in here, anybody in here who hasn't struggled as a believer. Again, we have a calling. Look in verse number two. Here's our calling. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
Now, I, I learned this passage originally in the King James Version, and verse number two mentions the burden, and verse number five mentions the burden in the King James. The ESV better translates it, and it breaks these two up into different categories. When we're told in verse number two to bear one another's burdens, that word burden translates a Greek word that means a really heavy load. That there is this teaching coming from Paul that says, if we are going to fulfill the law of Christ, and that has a couple of different facets to it. It could be a moral expectation. It could simply be Christ's demand for us to be holy as he is holy, or God's demand for that. It could be a lot of different things, but what Paul is saying is the holy expectation that, that we're all accountable to, the law of Christ, is that we would so relate to each other and give grace to each other that I can't bear to watch you struggle under your heavy load. That's what the word burden is translated from, a Greek word that means a, a heavy load. I can't just let you do that and remain indifferent. I, I can't see you struggle. I can't see you hurting. I can't see you burdened, bent over in a season where you are being pulled and stretched and, and, and torn and me to just stand aloof and indifferent and say, man, I just, I'm going to pray for you. I hope things get better. That, that's not what Paul is saying is, is, is the reality of the Christian here. That because of the koinonia, because of the partnership, the fellowship that we have each other with each other, the oneness that we have in Jesus Christ, there is a dynamic in play that says, my brother's burden is my burden. My sister's burden is my burden. And so part of the body of Christ coming together, it's just like in your physical body. All of us have had probably an occasion to be injured in an arm or a leg, an extremity. And when that happens, the rest of your body does what? It compensates for that injured part of the body. And so you, if, you're, if you're limping, what a limp is, is the rest of your body adjusting to a part that doesn't work like it once did. If your arm is in a sling, and especially if it's the hand that you're dexterous with, if, if your hand or your arm is in a sling, the rest of your body has to slow down and compensate. Your brain has to think harder. How do I do the things I used to do without even thinking about? It's the same way with the body of Christ. If one part of the body is burdened, the rest of the body is to come alongside and help compensate for that broken part, that struggling part. Now, that doesn't always happen because we're fiercely independent Americans. And we're capable, and quite honestly, it works both ways. Sometimes we're so independent, we're wrapped up in ourselves, and we don't pay enough significant attention to those that are struggling because we're wrapped up in the orbit of our own world. But other times, we're the ones who need help, but we're too proud to ask for it because we don't want to trouble anybody. And so we've got this independence factor. But what Scripture reveals is interdependence. Scripture reveals that we are to bear one another's burdens and not to do it with grief, not to do it with resentment, but to come alongside because in so doing, we're fulfilling the law of Christ. We're being like Jesus to one another. If we're going to do that, it requires what is revealed in verse number three. And that's our humility. If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Boy, that's not real flattering. Uh, Paul seems to be maybe targeting with a little bit of heavy ammunition there, that, that resilient pride in us that doesn't quite want to die. Um, there's something in us when somebody else is struggling and we're in a season where things are going our way. Maybe the skies are, are sunny. 
Maybe the body's healthy, maybe the bank account's robust, maybe open doors of opportunity are finding us and we, we roll off platitudes and pledges and promises and proclamations because everything's going our way. You know how easy it is to make big, bold statements when everything's going your way? And sometimes we're doing that and thinking, man, I'm, if, if she just get her act together, she could live like I'm living. If this guy could just discipline himself a little bit more, man, he'd be rolling like I'm rolling. And, and we oftentimes say, well, you know, I feel sorry for him, but I, that would never be me. I would never get myself in that situation. I, w- I don't struggle like that. You just got to buck up a little bit. You got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, try harder. And so we're real good about just kind of taking credit for the blessings that God has put in our life. Sometimes you've been blessed so long that you forget who blessed you. And you just start thinking, and you don't do it actively, consciously, you just start thinking, yeah, I mean, this is just who I am. I'm, I'm blessed. And if you're not careful, you'll start taking credit for stuff. And then you'll look at other people who aren't blessed and you'll actually lower your evaluation of them. So Paul says this, when you think you are something, when actually you aren't anything, <laughs> you're deceiving yourself. Um, there's a, an old story, I think it was from the 70s, probably mid-70s, and uh, that great Titanic fighter, Muhammad Ali, was in first class in a jet flying somewhere with his entourage, and uh, he had unbuckled. And the stewardess came by there, and she said, Mr. Ali, you need to put on your buckle. And he said, no. Nah. And she said, got more firm with him. Mr. Ali, please put on your buckle. And he rose up, and he said, Superman don't need no buckle. And she said, Superman don't need no plane sit down and buckle up. The point is this, when you think you're something, God has a way, whether it's through a stewardess, a circumstance, or just hopefully on the positive end of things, just the Holy Spirit's compassion moving in you will humble you. And friends, that's one of the greatest virtues. One of the things I want to teach my kids, and we do that, uh, that, that pride moves us towards all manner of different kinds of evil. And if we'll stay humble, we stay blessable. And if we start looking at other people when they're struggling and we're losing our empathy, part of the reason why is because somewhere along the line, pride has entered in. We've become a little bit too self-focused, but humility will always make you realize I am what I am by the grace of God and the grace which has been bestowed upon me was not in vain. Paul wrote that in a different place. Then verse number four mentions our mercy. This is a little bit of a tricky verse Um, Every time I preach through this passage, I have to get refreshed on how to interpret verse 4. But it does make sense in context. Verse 4, let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Now, it sounds weird to us because we're actually taught not to boast in ourselves, didn't I just talk about being humble? It's not what Paul's doing. Paul's not saying walk around, brag about yourself. What he's saying in this, when you're going to qualify yourself, when you're going to determine that you are who you need to be, you are being where you need to be, doing what you need to be doing, Paul said this, the way you do that is just examine yourself in the light of who Jesus is. Examine yourself as as you are living in your identity in Christ. The one thing he's saying here when he says, "Don't, don't be considering your neighbor in this process, what is he saying? He's saying, don't try to make yourself feel better about you by looking at somebody else. Do you know how just kind of insidious that is in us? Sometimes when we want to feel better about ourselves, We just pick the biggest loser we can find, stand right next to them and say, I am great. 
I mean, compared to this person, now we never do it out loud. I'm talking about heart talk. I'm talking about in our minds. We just say, well, thank God I'm not the transgressing sister. I'm not the transgressing brother. I'm not struggling. And we oftentimes justify ourselves by picking somebody who's clearly in a worse situation in life. And, and friends, listen, I know this isn't a real happy thought, but we need to be aware of this. That's why Paul said just a few moments earlier, he said, you just need to be aware of your own self because you've got your own areas of susceptibility. And so we need to recognize that we, we are not um, permitted to make ourselves feel better by looking down on others that are struggling. We need to move to those others that are struggling and we need to show mercy and compassion to them in humility. The reminder is seen in verse number five. Now, here's the other side of the coin because I, I spent a fair amount of time telling you that we've got to bear each other's load, but look at verse number five. For each will have to bear his own load. Verse number two says we're to bear one another's burdens, and that's the heavy burden that's impossible in certain seasons for you to carry on your own. You're going to need some help from time to time. Humble yourself, let somebody help you. Somebody in your life is going to need your help from time to time. Humble yourself and help them. But notice verse number five. Here's a reminder. There's certain things that nobody can help you with. There are certain God-ordained weights. The word here that is translated um, load in verse number five is a different Greek word than what was used in verse number two to translate burden. This word in verse number five translate kind of a soldier's knapsack, a one man carrying his own load. It's not meant to be shared by another. It's situated for that soldier's back. It contains what that soldier needs. And so he carries that himself. And what Paul's saying is, Yes, we are to bear one another's uh, burdens, but ultimately you need to recognize that you're accountable for some things completely on your own. There's a lot of different ways I can go with this, and I don't want to over-apply it. Ultimately, I think we can make the application that nobody can help you bear, uh, bur- excuse me, nobody can help you bear your sin burden. Um, I'm not going to give an account for you and what you did for Jesus. I'm not. My kids can't ride on my coattails. I can't ride on Amy's coattails. You can't ride on anybody's coattails. Ultimately, we all have to give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ for the lives that we led. So in that sense, everybody's got to bear his own burden. But I do think that there's also another practical sense to it. And that means that God doesn't allow us to live this life weightless. That there are God-ordained burdens. Now, this this may test some of your theology, but hear me out on it. There are God-ordained burdens that he assigns to our lives because in the carrying of those burdens, we develop the spiritual muscle that we need. We, we, We become more dependent upon him. We also grow and mature. Let's do a quick inventory. How many of you would would confess that most of your discernible spiritual growth has come after seasons of extreme burden and difficulty? That's been my experience. I don't grow a whole lot when everything's going my way. I'm probably easier to be around, but I don't grow spiritually a whole lot when I've got everything going my way. But when I go through seasons of struggle where my loving, wise, heavenly father places something on my back, he won't let Amy help me carry it. He won't let my co-laborers help me carry it. He won't let my uh, counselors help me carry it. I, I got nowhere to turn. It's just a Jeff and Jesus scenario. Those are the things that strengthen me. And he doesn't do it because he's sadistic or cruel 
Remember God's ultimate design is that we will be like Jesus. And that's not only when we get to heaven, but that's also that we would by faith enter into that process of becoming like Jesus down here. Now I'm just gonna ask you a question. Did God spare his own son from carrying burdens? So it would be an inappropriate approach to the Christian life to say, well, Jesus bore it all, therefore I bear nothing. You gotta remember what Jesus himself said. He said, yeah, if you, if you don't pick up your cross and carry it daily, you actually can't be my disciple. And so we do have an apportioned load. I wanna encourage some of you right here tonight. It's not gonna remove the burden, but it's gonna provide some context for it. Some of you are carrying burdens right now that you may be tempted to believe the devil is putting on you, but it may actually be that the Lord has placed that on you because on the back end of you learning how to walk with that load, you're going to come out more like Jesus than you ever would have been without that load. And his, because his ultimate design is to make us like his son, we can't do that without some weight being carried. Now, when we're carrying that, and when somebody in our life is carrying that, uh, some of us in the body of Christ have met people with the savior complex then maybe some of you sitting here, you just can't bear to see anybody struggle. And so you're just going to do whatever you can to make it easier, 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 because you're a rescuer and you're compassionate and all of that. Sometimes we need to have very clear discernment that there are occasions where God says, don't rescue this person right now. I've put that on them. I'm going to leave it on them and I'm going to help them. I'm going to give you other stuff to think about. And there are times, parents, listen, we've got to do that. I, I don't like seeing my kids struggle, but I also realize there's times as they get older that they can't keep coming to mom and dad for everything. We've got to let those little birdies fly, and they're going to have to learn how to fly with Jesus on this stuff. Same thing with our spouses, um, you know, and it can happen in their churches too. Uh, there was only one Savior, and his name was not your name. And so we make pastors, listen, I want to be a servant. I want to be there for you, but I am a horrible Savior horrible. Um, pastors make lousy saviors. Spiritual leaders make lousy saviors. Why? Because they've got their own loads to carry, and they've got God telling them at times that there are certain loads in your lives that they're not supposed to carry. And so in that sense, everybody has to bear his own load. Maybe, maybe we should add to our prayer list, God, give us the wisdom to keep our hands off a load that's on one of your children. But while we can't touch their load, help us give them grace as they bear it. As they bear that load that only they can bear, Lord, give us grace to encourage, exhort, pray for, to come alongside. But listen, you may not be allowed to remove that burden off of them, but that doesn't mean you have to stand aloof and detached. There are other ways you can enter into that with them. Verse number six is going to be quick and easy, but it is in your Bible. And I can preach this because this is not an area where Newbridge um, fails. This is, this, uh, this is good. What am I talking about? Grace for the shepherding Christian. It's very clear in verse number six. Here's our privilege through this particular Christian. One who is taught in the word. Okay. It's, it's a little awkward, granted, but right now, you sitting here, you're, you're, in, a, you're in a moment of privilege. Why? Because through your desire to be here, through our uh, facilitating this service, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but not also uh, completely independent from, from my investment in you, you're being taught the word. 
you're getting the word of God. You're getting both the, the, um, the interpretation of the word and the application. Please remember with me that there are lots, millions of people in the world today who know not one word of the Bible. They don't even know the name Jesus. And so when we're receiving the word, I mentioned to you earlier today that I listened to two sermons today. I'm always feeding myself the word. I want good preachers preaching into my life. And every time I hear somebody preaching and investing in my life, I realize, wow, I'm being privileged. And so what Paul's about to be writing here about is the relationship between the teacher of the word, the preacher, meeting the spiritual needs of the flock, feeding them spiritually, and the reciprocation of that is that those being fed are to meet the material needs of the preacher. And that's the second part of verse number six. It says, one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. So our privilege through the Christian is to receive the word taught by them, but our ministry back to them is that we must share. We are to give. We are to, the word is actually more than just writing a check. It's to partner up with, to have a a, a fellowship with, to enter into a life with these people. And it says, we share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, I'm not going to belabor this because again, I I think this is ABC stuff. But but one of the reasons that we give in our churches is something as practical as God's expectation for those that receive the ministry of the word to take care of those that minister the word. Now, I'm not bucking for a raise. I'm okay. I'm good. Okay. I'll let you know if I ever, actually, I won't let you know. I'll let the elders know if I ever need a raise. And I've been blessed not to need one for a long time. And I rejoice in that because that money can go somewhere else. But the fact of the matter is, is don't let that keep you from being a giver. And there are two men who've poured into my life in the last three years. Neither one of them uh, go to this church. They're both pastors. They're preachers of the word. And let me tell you what I do, because I receive so much from their ministry. I sow into their life financially. I don't do all of my giving here. I do 99% of my giving at this church, but I recognize God's used these two men in my life and one of them I support monthly and the other I support whenever God gives me the ability just to send a good check to them. Why do I do that? Primarily because I believe it's scriptural. We don't muzzle out the ox that treads out the corn. The Bible says that those that minister in the word among elders are worthy of a double portion. And so what it does is it keeps us refreshed saying, man, the word of God and those that pour into our lives with the word of God, that's important. That's not a side issue. And so that's actually a grace. I want you to think about that with me. We're talking about grace for the the sideline Christian who sins, grace for the struggling Christian who's burdened, but also grace for the shepherding Christian. I I think, and and you may go to a different assembly. Uh, You might leave this assembly one day and go to a new church, and, and here's something you need to remember. It is absolutely, unequivocally, the the calling of the congregation to take uh, practical material care of those that serve them with their lives. Matter of fact, the Presbyterian Church of America um, even has this woven into their kind of their creeds and their governing statements that the job of the congregation is to alleviate the pastors from material concerns so they can give the bulk of their energy and time into the spiritual concerns of the flock. And when that happens, somebody might raise their hand and say, yeah, Jeff, but what about all the TBN stuff from the 80s and all of these flamboyant preachers with their Lear jets and all of that? Okay, well, granted, that's an issue. And man, I'd hate to be a guy that has to answer for that when I stand before the Lord. But we're not actually talking about those guys. They're very rare. Most of the pastors I know, 
live well within their means. They're very sincere in bringing the word of God. And most of the ones that I know are, are taken care of adequately by their congregations. And so I want to encourage you, if nothing else has ever motivated you to give, and again, I'm not trying to get a raise, I'm trying to help you. If nothing else has ever motivated you to give, don't you want to be consistent in having received from the Lord through a teacher of the word, don't you want to also be part of that reciprocation process where you give back uh, to that one whom God has used in your life. So let's go to the next one, verses seven and eight. We're almost done here. This is grace for the sifted Christian. This, I think, is um, something that we, we need to grow in. I, I think, and I'm gonna read the verses in a second. I, th- I think we see it clearly for the sideline Christian because they clearly need grace. I mean, they've, they've blown it. They're exposed, they're caught in a transgression. Um, The struggling Christian, most of us have compassion. We want to help. But the sifted Christian is somewhere between maybe they were struggling and they haven't quite tanked yet, but they're drifting. And it's not just drifting because of some, you know, distraction or carelessness on their part. It's that the reality, the, the exposure of the reality, the devil doesn't mind working incrementally in somebody's life. And sometimes that person against whom the enemy is working incrementally, sometimes they're the last one to know it. Sometimes we see it in somebody's life before they do. How can we give them grace? What do we do? Because we certainly don't want to overstep our bounds and, and be judgmental. We don't want to be harsh or discouraging, but we also don't want to be negligent and let somebody we love and care about, when we see them moving from a level of devotion to Jesus and slipping into lesser loyalties. So what do we do? Well, the one thing that we do is we don't forget everything we've talked about up to this point. Remember, if we're spiritual enough to discern it, we ought to be spiritual enough to tarry before the Lord and figure out how he wants to use us in that person's life. And that's going to be humbly and gently with kindness. You don't get to be, you know, Amos the prophet, and coming in there, you know, blazing, and I see, thus saith the Lord, you are two steps away from the eternal fires of hell if thou dost not repent. Now, you would probably never do that, but sometimes that's the way people receive um, our, our less than thoughtful uh, attempts to help them. Well, let's look at the verses. When we're talking about grace for the sifted Christian, first of all, we are warned. This is a verse that most of us know. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. For whatever a person sows, that's what he or she is going to reap. I'm paraphrasing there. Um, It begins with this warning. Hey, guys, brothers, sisters, all of us are susceptible to being deceived. You and I, as much as we love Jesus, as much as we might be in the word, as as much as we might have accomplished in the kingdom up to this point, as on fire as we might have been in the past, you can actually be, be deceived before lunchtime tomorrow. And so we're commanded to stay alert, to stay vigilant, to be sober-minded. And here we're told we don't need to be deceived on something very specific. Whatever you put in the ground is going to grow. Whatever seed you plant is going to bring forth some kind of harvest. And so we're being told here that there is a cause and effect in our behavior. And sometimes when we're speaking of this in the context of grace and the earlier verses about restoring people, I don't think that this is a 
a principle that's divorced from the rest of the passage. I think what Paul is saying is this. There is this principle in the kingdom, the law of sowing and reaping. That means what comes out from me will come back to me. There's a non-biblical kind of uh, caption of that that says what goes around comes around. That's not an entirely unbiblical thought. What you plant, you will harvest. What you sow, you will reap. And we don't need to be deceived about this. And so sometimes, you know, have you ever done this? And listen, I'm just going to talk real to you. Clearly, the Bible tells us to have one attitude towards our own sin. And that attitude involves an action. The attitude is to be horrified by our sin, and the action is to repent of it. That, that's really the only options the Bible gives. Hate your sin and flee from it. But do you know what is, is kind of become novelty? Maybe not become novelty. It's probably always been this way. But instead of hating our sin and fleeing it and repenting of it, we, we manage it. We manage our sin. So in other words, we think, okay, <clears throat> maybe I'm not being the person I should be all the time, but man, I'm not near as bad as I used to be, and I'm certainly not as bad as her. And so we, we say to ourselves, you know what, well, I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm not serving like I should. I'm, I'm not praying like I should. I'm not treating my spouse the way I should. I'm not investing in my kids like I should, but you know what, I'm, it, it's going to be okay. And, you know, I, I'm just going to, it's going to be about me for a little bit. And so we manage that sin, and the Lord says, now, very gently here, don't be deceived. Because what you sow today, you're going to reap tomorrow. And sometimes we can't get to the the tomorrow. And and we actually don't believe the harvest will come in, but it always does. Now, listen, I'm speaking in the negative. Let's flip this thing in the positive. What you sow today, because that's what we're about to talk in a minute, in the positive in the kingdom, what you sacrifice today, what you invest today, what you give up in the temporary in order to store up in the eternal, when you're sowing in that, that, that manner, and, and you are on track, and you are uh, devoted, and you are pressing into Jesus, and you are um, carrying the cross. Jesus says, look, maybe you didn't see any results today. Maybe you didn't see any results this year. But I want you to keep on sowing because there's a law to my harvest. What is that law? You never reap in the same season you sow. Just in the natural. You, none of us would do this. How many of y'all planted a garden already this year? Okay, we got a few people in here. You didn't, you know, get the ground prepared, put in the seed, water it, go in the house, get a glass of lemonade and sweet tea, come back out and say, where's the tomatoes? Where's the green beans? Where's the squash? It's been 30 minutes. You know why you'd never do that? It's a little stupid, but the, the fact of the matter is, is you understand the natural law that you don't immediately reap when you sow. And yet sometimes in the kingdom life, you know, we sow for 15 minutes and we're like, where's my fruit? Where's my reward? Sometimes the Lord just wants to see if you just keep on sowing, keep on sowing, keep on sowing and trust him with the timing of the season. When we see somebody that's not sowing like they once did, and we sense that maybe they're being sifted, the word sift and drift, those sometimes go, because I see this all the time as a pastor. Um, more often than I would like to acknowledge, months ahead of time before somebody falls, fails, or implodes in some way, Amy and I will have a conversation, and it's usually like this. 
I see what's going on in so-and-so's life. I see how their countenance has changed. I see how they've pulled back. I, I see how the fire's gone. I see it, but I don't know what I can do about it. But I see it, and what I recognize is that there's a sifting going on. And so I don't want to be, you know, intrusive, but I also don't want to be negligent. And so you come in there and you bring grace and you do come with gentleness. But if that sifting occurs, look at verse number eight. We need to remember we've already witnessed something. Verse number eight is important. This is why we sometimes have to practice what Jude said near the end of his little letter. He said, some you snatch out of the fire, despising the garment spotted by the flesh. Meaning this, sometimes you don't take your time. When it gets down to danger zone, you got to go after it. Why? Because we're witnesses of something. What is it? Verse 8, the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit equal, excuse me, reap eternal life. What does that mean? What we're being taught here is this, that the back end of a person, and we're talking about Christians, we're talking about believers, we're not talking about unbelievers. This whole context is brothers, brothers, sisters. So when we see one, if they continue to sow to their flesh, if they continue to be negligent in their walk with Jesus, if they continue to drift, if they continue and nothing interrupts it, the Bible says the end result of that is some form of corruption, decay, death. Something is going to become uh, putrid and it's, it's going to decompose. And so what they need from us is not for us to wait until that, that corruption takes over, and then you know how that works sometimes. Well, I saw it coming six months ago. I just didn't say anything. Well, why are you saying something now? We've got to be gracious. Doesn't mean we run in guns blazing the first time somebody's starting to struggle, but doesn't love dictate that we come to them in grace and say, you know what, man, I care about you and some of the ways God has used you in my life, your fire, your zeal, your commitment. You know, I don't know if I'm misinterpreting things, but are you doing okay? Because I just sensed, and I could be wrong, I sense some of that diminishing as something going on. Now, most reasonable Christians, they may be uncomfortable with that moment, but they're going to realize you really care about them. Now, if you come in their guns blazing and say, hey, you old black slider, what are you doing, man? You used to be on fire for Jesus. You make me sick now, man. We Get your act together. And we start legislating righteousness to them. You're just going to push them further away. But I'm going to tell you, grace is like oil to when we get kind of rusted up in the body of Christ sometimes. It's like the old tin man in the Wizard of Oz. He just need a little bit of oil so he can move again. And we need that from each other. And if we don't do that, I think this is where I, I get concerned, is that when that corruption hits, when they start reaping what they sowed in the flesh, do you know what happens sometimes? The Christians that should have talked to them start talking about them. The ones that should have intervened in the, before you know, the bottom dropped out, when the bottom drops out, a lot of those same Christians will, will gossip about it. And friends, we are, we are made for greater things than that. That's the antithesis of love. Love says, I'm going to risk it. They may even be upset with me, but we've got to bring grace to them. And again, you're going to need to be spiritually in tune with the Lord to know how to handle that. By the way, this is, look at what Jesus did. Maybe that's the best example. In Luke chapter 22, do you remember the one that was getting sifted in Luke 22? He, he's the man. He's Peter. And Peter is talking up a good game about how committed he is to Jesus. And, and Jesus doesn't, you know, he's not screaming at him. He just very calmly tells Peter, he says, Satan's desire to sift you like wheat. 
And then he actually, if we want to call it prophesies, he just tells Peter, he says, there's going to be some form of a fall, but when you're restored, I want you to strengthen the brethren. So Jesus actually says to Peter, you're being sifted. Peter and Jesus didn't get into a big debate about it, but I do believe that that example alone says that sometimes God will place you in a position of spiritual enlightenment and expects you to go to one who is being sifted and just saying, hey, look, I don't know if you see it right now, but I do believe the enemy's working in your life. And I want to tell you, I'm praying for you. If I can help you, I want to help you. I'm not here to accuse you. I'm not here to condemn you. I love you. I'm concerned about you. But brother, sister, I think you might be slipping a little, and I just wanted to see if there's anything going on that I might help with. That is so disarming. That lets a person know you're there to serve them. You're there in love. And I'm going to tell you, most reasonable Christians, even if they don't respond favorably in that moment, they're going to go home chewing on what you said, and they're going to be evaluating their life. And God may use you as the messenger. So let's give grace to the sifted brother or sister. Sifted does not always equal sinning, okay? Just because they're being sifted doesn't mean they're living in sin. It just may mean they're living in ignorance. And so the body of Christ, you might be the eyes in that person's life. You're seeing what they don't see. Then finally, the last one, okay? We've got just a few moments. Verses 9 and 10, grace for the serving Christian. And this is where I get to send you out with some encouragement tonight. Because uh, a lot of you are just really zealous for the kingdom and you're serving God beautifully. And there is a temptation. Uh, The serving brother could be sister too. Forgive the masculine uh, reference there. But the serving Christian's temptation, verse 9, Here's the temptation. What is it? Getting weary while you're doing the right thing. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. I love it. I love that verse and all verses like it. It's not the only time something like this is mentioned in the Bible. I've confessed to you a lot that, over the years anyway, that I I just am grateful God's given me a bulldog spirit, not University of Georgia bulldog, although I am a fan, but a bulldog spirit. What does that mean? Just you sink your teeth into something and you don't don't turn loose of it. And, And so what we're told here is this, serving God is demanding. Serving God rightly at times is gonna flat wear you out. I mean, you cannot get away from that in scripture. You can't, that sometimes fulfilling God's calling or purpose for your life, whether it's something, you know, flamboyant or something just routine and mundane, but you know you're doing what God wants you to do, sometimes it'll wear you out. It demands your energy. It it demands nonstop give and not a whole lot of receive at times. Sometimes you're going to be misunderstood for doing God's will. Sometimes you're going to be overlooked as you do God's will. Sometimes somebody else that's not working half as hard as you is going to get twice the applause. And and all of these things are going to test you. And sometimes the only thing God is doing as you are working and serving, all he is doing is purifying your motive. In other words, he's going to take the applause away. He may even take at times the external enjoyment away. I have gone through seasons personally where he withheld the fruit. I was doing the same things I was doing the year before. And the year before, there was a bumper crop coming off of what I was doing. And that year, nothing, nothing. And sometimes if you're not careful, you you don't even realize that I'm doing what I'm doing because I love the results. And the Lord says, I love you, my child, but that's not the real reason to serve me. I want you to love doing what you're doing because you love me. 
And so I'm just gonna do this because I love you. I'm gonna remove the results from a little bit and I'm gonna purify your motive. And I just want you to continue to work and I want you to learn that doing it for results is what wearies you. Doing it for me, you'll never get weary. See friends, that's the way God operates. Because when you're doing it for him, um, and it's not as easy as it always sounds, you have to be conscious, consciously committed. Why am I doing what I'm doing? If I'm doing it for the results, what happens when the results are gone? If I'm doing it because it brings me gratification, what do I do if that sense of gratification isn't what it used to be? If I'm doing it because there is um, the approval of people, then what happens when they start not approving? And so what God does is he strips all these things away and he just gets you one-on-one. He's like, my daughter, you're just so precious. How about you and I go into a season where you learn you can do it for me and nothing else really matters? And when you cross that threshold, you're going to find yourself entering into phases where you don't get wearied, wearied out like you used to. Um, I want to encourage some of you that you're not imagining it. You're tired. Some of you are serving the Lord in your home. It's really easy to feel good about serving God up here. You got lights on you, cameras back there. It goes on TV. I mean, you know, I mean, instant, instant reward. But the lady changing her 13th diaper that morning doesn't really feel that. She's not feeling that instant gratification. But I want to say something. If that mom is serving that baby or that grandmom is serving that baby and doing it in a sense of this is where God has me right now, her reward is the same for the guy preaching the message under the spotlight, probably even a more a greater reward. And so the weariness is something we're all subject to. That's the temptation. So you're not imagining things. It does get kind of dry sometimes. It does get kind of dull sometimes. God hasn't called us to be flashy or flamboyant. He's called us to be faithful. And so if we can master that gratification that comes from faithfulness, we will overcome the temptation to not grow weary in well-doing. But remember the end of the verse, it's the command. He says, well, it's, it's really a condition. He says, you're going to reap. It's going to pay off. Now, you got to choose whether to believe your Bible or not. I just believe my Bible. My Bible says, if I refuse to quit, that's what it says. You're going to reap, but, but you won't if you quit. You're going to reap if you don't faint. I like the King James on that one, if we faint not. So if you'll just keep going, if you'll just go another day, if you'll just keep doing it for the Lord, if you don't give up, you don't let discouragement win, if you keep your eyes on the throne, if you keep getting your cues from God, if you don't allow the physical, mental, emotional, spiritual weariness to start calling the shots, if you will keep being who you're supposed to be and keep being faithful, then you're going to reap. That's a promise in your Bible. So keep after it, don't quit, but it's hard. Well, listen, hard is not bad unless you're addicted to comfort and ease. Then it's really bad. But again, Jesus has called us to follow him and he said, you're gonna pick up a cross, you're gonna follow me and the cross doesn't come with a cushion on it. Then the last thing, I think I've said that nine times, but this is really it because I'm out of verses. The serving brother's temptation is to grow weary while he's doing good and quit. But the serving brother's target Because he won't quit, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Just very quickly here. Um, It's said of the Lord that he went about doing good. I mean, that's, he's a son of God, the creator of all, majestic, supreme, sovereign, holy, all-wise, omnipotent God. And, And one phrase in the scripture says, yeah, he went about doing good. 
Jesus, the Son of Man, just looked to do good where he could. And then when Paul turns it here into a doctrine, he says, as you have opportunity, and you do all the time, you, you have way more opportunity, I have way more opportunity than we acknowledge. We have opportunities to do good all the time. And if you will do good as doing it under the Lord, God says, I receive that. You give a prophet a cup of water, uh, you'll receive a prophet's reward. You receive one of these little ones, you, you visit in the prisons, you feed the hungry. Jesus said, as much as you've done it unto them, you've done it unto me. And so the beauty of it is that we serve God by serving people. We worship God, but we serve God by serving people because God doesn't need our help. God doesn't need our service, but he's commissioned us to serve each other. And then the very last thing is this, do it unto everyone, but look at the footnote, and especially those in the household of faith, especially your Christian family. And so I don't mind telling you this as we close tonight. The best that I have to offer the best that I have to offer, my primary, my first target that I look for when I want to fire off a blessing on somebody, the first place I look is going to be the family of God. Now, if that sounds a little exclusive, a little bit isolationist, maybe even a little arrogant, I'm just going to tell you, I think I've got good Bible for it, that the best of my resources and my ability to be a blessing, the first target I ought to aim at is, where's one of the children of God that I can pour my best out on? And then, of course, we're going to be a blessing to others too. As we have opportunity, let's continue to do good. Don't faint. Most of you in the room are doing good. Most of you are actively, intentionally giving away portions of your life, and you're doing a good thing. Don't get tired of it. Stay fresh with Jesus. Stay committed. If you get sifted, we're going to give you grace. If you're struggling, we're going to give you grace. If you stumble, if you stagger or get sidelined, we're going to give you grace. Why? Because you're going to give us grace when we're the ones sidelined, when we're the ones that are struggling, we're, we're the ones who need strengthening. That's the way it's supposed to work. And brothers, sisters, if we'll take care of each other like that, great glory will come from that. People will look at us and say, look how they love one another. And Jesus said, yep, they're my disciples. That's what my disciples do.